Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening. I'm Lynn Curtis. I am co-chair of the Arts Forum, and I am curator of the exhibits here at the club. And I'd like to welcome you to the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating their 116th year. So tonight, I'm going to be brief in the intro and just move along to our speaker tonight, Sharon Beals, whose show has been up in our gallery here for some time, but they're exquisite photographs. And after looking at the nest so intricately built, I only have to laugh as us humans in trying to get things ready when I look at what they're capable of. Anyway, Sharon was born in Seattle and moved to San Francisco in 1979, where she began a career in professional photography. Since that time, she has expanded into the field of environmental protection, creating and documenting the intricacies of birds' nests and their occupants with the hope of protecting their continued survival. At the end of Sharon's talk, there'll be a question and answer period. And now, Sharon, it's finally your chance. Hi, everyone. Uh, Thank you for coming tonight. Um, I want to thank Lynn for finding me out at the shipyard. And um, I want to just say that um, I'm give, I was driven to do this talk because, as you know, I care about uh, the planet, and I care mostly, well, I care a lot about the birds that are all around us and are so heroic in their efforts to survive. It's been wonderful to have the nests here because they've been seen by so many people with inquisitive minds. And I hope that you've had time to read the signage and learn a little bit more about the birds that built the nests. So we're going to start. With a little beauty. Speaking publicly is a brave act for me, um, as it is for a lot of people in this room. But I was compelled to be here because... Um, we need to be concerned about birds. Um, there's been a, like a 70% decline, 50 to 70% decline in populations worldwide. But let me tell you how I got to the birds. For most of my life, I've been you know, spending a lot of time in the wild. In between my commercial assignments as a photographer, I spend as much time as I can out there. Uh, trying to create beauty and say with my camera what I see. And usually it's more quiet moments. It might be as subtle. I certainly don't do sunsets and um, well, maybe once in a while. <laughs> so I can tell you about these trees. These were lichen-starved trees up uh, near Casadero, and they were reaching for the light. That's why they're in such fantastic shapes, and they were covered with lichen. Lichen. Um, this is uh, open space over in Sonol, and I had looked all day to try to capture the intricacy of this habitat, and um, I stepped under that oak branch, and it made the picture for me. And once in a while, I, I've been so lucky to 
through my process of learning about the natural world, get to know some very wonderful um, naturalists, and one of them is a butterfly expert. And she took me to this lovely scene um, over in, out in Bolinas. It's an overwintering site, and this is they're all settling in for the night. And this was when a rain-starved creek finally made it to the ocean after the rain, first rains a couple of years ago. And more water. I spent a lot of time wading creeks. This are just the raindrops from trees after the rain. And this is, uh, these are willow roots in the Garcia River. But while I'm out there, I try to photograph birds. And... Um, not really a bird photographer, and but I I try to you know say who's that so I can later identify it. This is, these are crossbills, and they have these asymmetrical beaks that um, enable them to get the seeds out of pine cones. And there it is doing it. This is a great horned great horned owl on Bernal Hill, and some chicks in Claremont Canyon, and. Um, <laughs> Cedar wax wings up on Bernal Hill, one of my neighborhood's haunts. But while I'm out there, I'm always listening to song. I really, bird song is my sort of personal alm. It can kind of take me away when I'm in the middle of the city. I, I was at a job the other day and I stepped out and, and a maple tree on Spear Street, there was a white-crowned sparrow closing down the day. <laughs> you know, I'm always moved by that. Um, but along the way in these wanderings, in 2004, I read Scott Widensall's Living on the Wind Across the Hemispheres with Migrating Birds. Um, if you've not read it, if you're all interested in how fantastic birds are, this would be a book to read. Not, he talks about the science of migration, how birds manage to use polarized light, see polarized light, sense magnetic fields, and use what is thought to be acquired um, instinct to travel vast dis dif distances. This uh, Arctic tern is, has a phenomenal migration. They nest all the way up in the Arctic, and then they spend the year wandering around the planet from ocean to ocean. And in a year, their migratory route will have them covering two circumferences, or excuse me, two trips around the planet. In a lifetime of 34 years, they may fly to the moon and back four times. Yeah. This little bird, the black pole warbler, they nest kind of all over the northern United States. And then come fall, after they're nesting, they all kind of head to the east coast. Some actually go down maybe to the south. But they head out to the east coast. They fatten up. Then they fly 200 miles out into the ocean and catch a trade wind and fly for three or four days to the Caribbean or South America without food or water. The parents of these cliff swallows may have flown all the way from Argentina to build to rebuild these nests which are under my friend's eaves. 
This is an animation that's collected from, uh, showing the data that's collected from an app called eBird, where everybody enters their sightings on birds. Um, it doesn't cover South America because it doesn't, you know, they will go down through the Caribbean, um, through Central America, all the way to as far as, South, as Argentina. It's pretty amazing, these little birds that just appear in our lives and um, what they're capable of. But besides migration, the science of migration, Scott Widensall talks about what's happening to them along the way. And so what a lot of that has to do with how much habitat is lost. You're looking at, um, I think that's, what is that, a white-crowned sparrow? And so anyway, the habitat that feeds birds. So I was galvanized. I have spent, ever since then, ever since I read that book, learning as much as I can about our local habitats. I've followed these naturalists around um, and learned what was in our local terrain that might be the terrain that would support birds. Um, I learned a lot of botany and tried to say, and I try to say it in photographs for something that my people want to, to, to love and in, embrace. <clears throat> oh, this is um, manroot. This is a soap plant that only blooms in the afternoon. And um, this is on Bernal Hill after our super, after our rains. This is Clarkia. This was out in the Carrizo Plain. Alan, help me here. This is Bears, bears Ear. No, Alice Clover. Alice Clover. Clover. Yeah. And here's the Phacelia that I've been growing in my backyard. I have a little bit of the habitat in my backyard. Um, but to say in photographs what, you know, to say in photographs how important this terrain was really hard, to say how important it was for birds, even with beautiful species, specimens like this. But about the time, I don't know, when did I start doing this? About 2007, I had this idea that I would photograph some nests. So I was photographing friends' birds' nests. And um, visitors to my studio at Open Studios, who might never pick up binoculars, wanted to know who built the bird, built the nests. Um, so I had an idea for a book, I proposed it to Chronicle, and I got the book deal. I got interest. I got invited to the California Academy of Sciences for the first um, first experience. And um, my friend Lori Wiggum agreed to do the illustrations after I drug her up to a build bird illustration class up in the Sierra Nevada campus for the field campus with John Laws. So the Academy had some really interesting nests, uh, some of them historically important. This is a little marbled murrelet, and um, marbled murrelets will fly inland between, you know, 20 to 30 miles and actually just occupy the nest, the, a limb, a limb that is very old, between 200 and 2,000 years old, as thick as a tree itself, and they use that as a nesting platform. And they fly inland that far because um, it's away from civilization and all of the predatory crows and jays. But, um, but this nest was important historically because 
It was the first, it was collected in 1974. They had no idea where these elusive birds were nesting. And they found this log. And it was the, unfortunately, there was a, tri- a chick. So this is a Galapagos finch. And um, it's a small ground finch. And they build nests with uh, seed heads of cotton. And, <laughs> yeah. And this barn swallow was collected in China in 1934. Um, it was um, collected by a, a by someone named Lukashkin, and he was collecting in China during the occupation by Japan. And for a, a little while, I did not know that that was actually a Japanese n- newspaper. Um, he shipped things to... Um, you know, to the California Academy of Sciences, which had lost all of its collection in the earthquake. So he was an important contributor. These are barns, excuse me, bank swallow chicks. This nest, uh, these little guys um, nest out at the ocean beach. And this nest was collected by Betsy Cutler in 1960 from Ocean Beach. They build a, uh, about a three-foot-long, upwardly sloping tunnel. And inside it, they make a nest of little sticks and then add feathers for insulation. Um, here they are. So the, there they are at the cliff face. And uh, in the evening, you can go see, well, actually, you can see them all day, is the chicks waiting for the next delivery of insects. Um, and the sad thing is, is the there's been a lot of erosion out there, and this is one of two coastal nesting sites. But I was out there just a couple weeks ago, and they're there. So they're not in the exact site, but they're, they're, they, you know, they're returning by that inherited instinct, I'm sure. Um, these, this is a long-tailed tit, and they're in China and Asia. Um, they form this little pouch, cover it with lichen, and line it with at least 15,000 feathers that took 26 of file, miles of flying to collect. Yeah. And this is an Anna's hummingbird. They also use a lot of spider web and uh, co- spider con- cocoons to, excuse me, cocoons to uh, build a tiny little pouch. You've probably all seen them now. I mean, don't we all see birds now on, on uh, YouTube and on Facebook, um, but a friend brought this to me fresh, and uh, while we're not supposed to actually collect nests, I photographed it, and then I froze it for three days and took it to, back to the California Academy, and um, I went to visit it later, and it had turned into this little wizened thing that all the nests look like there, you know, all the... Um, and this is a Swainson's thrush. I moved on from the Academy to the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology at Berkeley. Um, and there were some very interesting pieces in the collection. This was from, um, this was collected by Joseph Grinnell, who started the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology. And he was important because this was just when collectors were out, like, just, you know, shooting and collecting. Let me tell you now that um, not many nests and eggs are collected now. And um, the eggs have been important to people uh, for scientific research. It was from the eggshells of um, that we learned. It was from eggshells that we learned that California condors were getting affected by DDT. 
Um, and now scientists have these databases so that they know that there's an egg of a certain species and they can ask for a sample of that shell rather than having that those eggs in their collection. Uh, anyway, Grinnell instituted this idea that people should take field notes, that they should really be recording the habitat and the behavior and um, you know all the nesting success or non-success. This is um, brown creeper, and brown creepers nest in the cavities of trees or under flaps of bark, and they build these little hammocks of twigs and sticks and w- using spider web to attach it to the, um, to the surface. And the one on the right is filled with wasp nest samples. This is a western tanager, and um, it's just been moved to the cardinal family. It's, <laughs> you know, they're doing all this research now, genetic research, and um, it's not really a cardinal at all. It gets its red plumage from eating, uh, let's see if I can pronounce this word, rodent, rod, now I can't say it because I didn't write it down, but it's something like rodancithin, and it is uh, found in the insects that they eat, which have also in turn eaten plants. And we'll get to the importance of plants in a bit. So here's the nest. It's so beautiful. Yeah. I'm not, you know, we're just, there's too much light to really see how, but you've seen the photographs out there, how saturated they are. And this little bird is a, called a hoary red pole or a common red pole. They nest as far na- north as any tiny little bird can survive. Um, they endure winters of minus 80 degrees by doubling their weight and down, building these little tiny nests, and then they feed off of exposed seed heads uh, and then come back. They swallow them, and then they come back and regurgitate the seeds. (laughs) So the things I've learned, there's their nest. That's the insulated nest. Um, This is a little common tailor bird, and they're just phenomenal little creative creatures. They manage, they use some natural fibers and they actually stitch the leaves together. These are tea leaves. Um, And then they fray the ends like a rivet so it uh, doesn't come apart. Then they make a little nest inside and they'll mend the leaves, mend the nest if there's, you know, go through a monsoon and get damaged. Um, And while they may sew, they're also famous for pilfering thread from their, ma- their human counterparts. This is a gray jay, and they also survive some very cold temperatures. Um, they're northern nesting, or they nest in higher elevations. Um, they, they're year-round residents of very cold climates, or the climates that can be cold in the winter, but they rely on that cold to store this stash of food that they've, you know, used their sticky saliva to stick under the bark of trees. So, um, and they store enough of it to feed their chicks and, you know, make it through the springtime. Um, But climate change is actually affecting how long that food stays frozen and they're having less nesting success. This is a verdin. It's a little desert-dwelling bird which doesn't get out of bed until the insects are flying around. <laughs> and in its lifetime, they'll build 
a dozen of these, excuse me, in a year, they'll build like a dozen of these little fortresses, thorny fortresses, to uh, roost and nest. This is a wonderful drawing of a road runner. And um, Native Americans gave Roadrunner's spirit the power to kill a rattlesnake. And it must have been because they do use some snakeskin in their nests generally. But they, this guy had found some burlap. <laughs> it was collected in 1908. Uh, this is a, a nakeke. Or can someone say that better than me? Is it a keke ee? Anyway, it's spelled with a lot of E's in an accent mark that I don't understand. Um, the last 4,000 Akeke live above 1,800 feet in Hawaii. Um, they used to have a range of over 600 square miles, but now they're down to 10% of that territory because in 1860 and on, um, Europeans emptied the bilges of their ships and in- introduced malarial mosquitoes. Um, and which gave them, you know, avian pox and malaria. So they survive above 1,800 feet because that's the mosquito line. And um, this has affected not only this little species, but many other Hawaiian birds. Here's a nest, I'm sorry. This is a, something called an Ohio Ohio Lahua tree. It's in the myrtle family. This little colorful thrush is pretty colorful for thrushes because mostly they're pretty dull little birds um, with the orange eye rings and yellow legs. But they're very elusive. They're, um, they're tropical in South America and in the highlands. So researchers are told when they're looking to find them is to look for large clumps of moss, which would be their nests. This is a social flycatcher. And they build these dome-shaped nests, and they kind of hang them everywhere. They're fairly common bird, uh, but mostly over water, but often off of street lights and, you know, in people's houses. And um, they decorate them with something to change to sort of camouflage the shape, and those are egret feathers. This is a gold, uh, yeah, golden mass tanager, and they used a honeycomb to make their nest. I mean, they built it inside a honeycomb. I could not not photograph that specimen, and it smelled so good. It smelled just like honeycomb. Um, but they're an important bird because they will eat a lot of insects, but they also eat a lot of fruit, and they disperse the seeds of the fruit, and therefore they sort of, you know, encourage the forest to be healthy. Um, This is an African palm swift, and they build these nests that they use. They're sticky saliva. They have very sticky saliva. I mean, you've seen um, the whole family. They're uh, nests that people put in soup, and you've seen those in photographs. It's actually, um, so they use their saliva to adhere the nesting materials to a palm leaf when it's downward hanging. Um, they have a very low success, <laughs> they have a, a rather low nesting success because of this precarious position, but they managed to survive. 
And this is uh, Caspian tern. And they don't build much of a nest. They just rely on the, the color of their eggs to camouflage the nest in a sort of open ground. And this was collected on Shell Island in Baja, California. And the wonderful thing about this was usually the specimens of birds like this is there's these shaky little, these boxes that are just all pile of rocks, sand. But this guy had dropped it into resin, so it was held its shape, the collector. And this is a tree swallow. Um, there are also cavity nesting. This beautiful specimen had uh, Canada goose feathers in it. Um, since I've done the book for the last few years, I've been working on an, the idea for another one, which is to um, document the nests of extinct and endangered species. And this is a nest of the Bachman's warbler. I found it back at the um, Western Foundation of Vertebrate Zoology in Camarillo. They didn't actually know they had it. Um, I went looking for it because I saw it on their database. Um, but this is this just broke my heart with those beautiful skeleton leaves and the wild shape of it. The story on the Bachman's warbler was they're a quiet little bird, and um, sadly they've lost so much habitat, and they may have also been affected by hurricanes in the Bermudas and Cuba. Um, so when they returned to their mating nesting grounds, they probably just couldn't find each other. So the last one was seen in 1964, or the last pair was seen in 64. There was one seen in 65. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. This is um, a threatened species, the Henslow sparrow. This nest was collected back in the late 1800s. And um, they're grassland nesting birds. And like the story of the planet, they're, you know, they're losing their habitat too. Um, but this beautiful creation was at the Smithsonian, and it was, like, how did it survive, you know, in the collection that long? But lucky me, I got to photo it. This is a golden-cheeked warbler nest, and it had cardinal feathers in it, another uh, threatened species. Um, you know, once again, habitat loss. So while I'm in these collections, I try to do some, you know, I'm going to give you a little amusement now. Um, this is a Phoebe nest, um, an eastern Phoebe nest. This is, collect this is found in somebody's gardening shed. Um, this is a house finch, and it was probably pilfered the dustbin or the trash can of a, a sweatshop. One can only imagine. And I got to photo in Australia last year, um, a little story for National Geographic. And um, I, so I was attracted to this because it had man-made materials in it. I love um, seeing what they've, what they've found. But I wasn't so pleased to see, see this. Actually, I 
a friend, not a friend, an acquaintance sent this to me saying, would I like to photograph it? This is a nest that was entirely covered in fishing line, including fishing hooks, if you can see them. This uh, Baltimore Oriole used the plastic threads of construction tarp. But today, I wouldn't be surprised if shorebirds' nests look something like this. This is part of a series I did that to comment on how much plastic is in the planet um, or on the planet. And I pick this all, all this trash up from the beach when I go walking. And um, I did. I started out doing these little arrangements, not knowing that they actually look like nests. And then I moved on. This is what I collected at Lake Michigan of after a storm for two hours. This is two hours take. Um, the Bic, I want to say something about the seabirds. Um, a cigarette lighter is one of the more common ingredients in a Laysan albatross chick's belly. Yeah. Um, observers have seen them, have seen seabirds out picking up colored plastic that was either red or pink or brown because it's supposed to look like shrimp. There are I've just got a statistic from somebody at Recology today. There are 26 trillion pieces of plastic in the ocean. These are balloons that I collected at Ocean Beach um, in one hour. Uh, somebody must have had a party, but we all know about balloon releases, right? That they're not a good thing. And uh, birds will actually eat the balloons. They think they look like fish. Fish eat them, not to mention the threads and the twine. Um, these are tiny bits of uh, degraded New York Times plastic bags. Um, plastic lives forever. It breaks down into microscopic particles. Um, we are now consuming in our water a credit card's worth of plastic a week. It's, I've been sort of seeing that a lot, and I got sent by the recology guy that information. Um, these are one day's worth of plastic bottles from the recology center. Um, what was this figure on this? It was like 5 billion plastic bottles a year globally, and also plastic bags. We use a million plastic bags a minute globally. So, okay, I have to remember. Uh, but one thing you can do, I mean, I know the plastic problem is so huge. Um, the good news is that 127 countries now are banning plastic bags. Um, Vermont has banned them entirely, and they were on to the manufacturer's um, who were making the plastic bags thicker because the description of the bags that were their band were thinner, but now they all have to have, in order for somebody to actually use a plastic bag from their restaurant or their store, they have to actually have a sewn handle. So this is really, I think, you know, the this kind of legislation really actually creates awareness. Um, the new bins that we're getting in San Francisco have increased... Recycling by 10% and um, the composting by another 10%. I do think that 
we all have to think about it very seriously. I'm not sure how many of you are walking around with one of these now, but um, I think we've been sold a bill of goods by the idea that we can recycle because what I learned at Recology the other day was that there are a lot of things that they can't find a market for, especially now that China's not taking our plastic. Um, stunning things like, you know, those trendy greens that you get in the clamshell, they have no market for that. So um, I've been washing out my plastic bags for like, I don't know, 20 years, I think, probably longer than that. Um, and going to the farmer's market or a rainbow or where I can fill things back up again. Um, and But it's made me, rem- it reminds myself of the two-month plastic fast I did, which was really hard. <laughs> it's a certain bread I like, you know, comes in a plastic bag. And the hardest thing was cheese, but I got by right to cut it and put it into paper. But, you know, it can be done. It means that you can't buy any computer parts or, you know, you can't get anything shipped from Amazon or whatever. But it's just if we can be, you know, just try it for a while and see if you can go through your life and become a little more aware of um, what we're doing to the planet and how you can change. Um, and then it's encouraging to see that so many... I walk around and I see who, who's carrying bottles and a lot of young people are now. You know, it's kind of a, a badge of righteousness, I guess. But, but one thing you can do for the birds um, is to think about the coffee that you buy. And that's somewhat simple, actually. Um, it used to be that we would um, buy shade-grown coffee if we were concerned about birds. Um, and sometimes that's used... Uh, actually, it's 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 used by righteous good people like Thanksgiving coffee. Um, but it's also I saw a photograph at a Starbucks. I was kind of desperate. I was out there in no man's land, and there was a Starbucks, and I saw a photograph of row coffee, coffee uh, covered with burlap bags. So what you want to find are um, is coffee that's grown in a forest. Um, if you can find coffee with that little green symbol, it's called the bird-friendly symbol. Um, if you can't find it, you can order it from the Smithsonian of all places. Um, and it's not bad coffee. At Rainbow, I found um, a brand called Vasquez, which has the symbol, and they have some really good roasts. And this is they, they, the coffee would be grown in a forest like this. And the importance of this for birds is that. They haven't lost habitat. And uh, there's actually a study that was done that showed that how many Western tanagers will find a home after they've migrated all those miles to a coffee plantation. Um, This is uh, something that Thanksgiving Coffee gave me. They've been um, buying coffee from small vincas and small farmers and collectives uh, since the revolution in... uh, Nicaragua was quite an education. So I have a bag of that coffee to give to somebody. Let's see, what's the prize? (laughs) Oh, gosh, I have to think of a question. I didn't come up with a question. Okay, so um, how about we'll just name the next botanic plant. How's that? (laughs) And in the meantime, we have to talk a little bit about palm oil. I, you know, it's a very hard one to talk to cover because um, it's in everything. Um, and 
one of the stories that I've gotten is, but you can see that it's, this is what happens when people build palm oil plantations. A lot of them, there's just a lot more, a lot of deforestation. Um, There's some discussion about if you actually boycott palm oil, you'll be depriving the good growers who haven't cleared all their land and they're only um, growing it in small portions. So there's this symbol here. Uh, that you can look for on any of the products that are doing sustainably grown palm oil. And next, I want to talk to you about water. I'd like you to think about everything that you put into it. I'm sure that most of the people in this room are pretty green, um, but there are so many things that that people don't know. All of your scented products, all our fancy hair products, our cream rinses, our scented shampoos, our scented detergents. They don't get treated by water treatment plants. That's in our water forever. And the effect on animals, including seabirds and fish and sea otters, it's affecting their hormone cycles. It's affecting their breeding success. Um, So there are ways to do it. (laughs) I buy this container of some sort of unscented, it's supposed to be used for dish soap, but I dilute it, I use it on my hair. <laughs> you know, I just think we've been sort of oversold on the idea of you know, what we really need for beauty products. Um, but there is a website called Environmental Working Group. Do people here know about it and use it and consult it? It's a great place to get your sunscreen because um, you've all heard about the corals, Right. Um, it's a great place to at least check your brand. You can check all of your ingredients in your household products in there. So, I mean, put a little perfume behind your ear <laughs> if you can stand it. Um, another thing that we can do to help birds, you've all heard, probably had that experience of, or maybe you haven't, but that terrible thump of a bird hitting a glass window. Um you know, birds don't see, they see the reflective windows of sky or they're um, disoriented by light. There are things that you can do. There's very wonderful solutions if you're, you know, designing a building. But in your own house, if you've had that experience, you can put little dots on your windows in a two-by-four pattern. There are, um, if anybody wants this information, I'm going to do a little sort of big li- bibliography for this talk and give you all of the um, links to PDFs and to the information. Um, but bird strikes kill something like, I don't know what, a billion, is it, birds a year? Um, turn off your lights at night. Ask your buildings to turn off their lights. Um, it's, and it's particularly during migra- migra- migration. Um, and no discussion of saving birds would be complete without talking about the issue of outdoor cats. Mm-hmm. I know we all love our cats, right? Um, this was one of the last California quail in Golden Gate Park. Um, they've been decimated entirely in Golden Gate Park now by feral cats. Um, and even... Your Felix and your, I don't know what, Felix and Felix (laughs) have instinct to kill birds. And they're very good about silencing bells. People say bells work. 
No, they can just sit there and be completely still and then leap. So one of the solutions that have been suggested by people who can actually do this is to build a little catio, let them spend the day in a little, you know, cage. Uh, or you can put a, just put a uh, window screen on your window and let them enjoy the outdoors vicariously like that. It's, oh yeah, they kill a huge numbers. What is it? Like 300 billion yeah, cat, birds a year globally. Or you can put them on a leash. <laughs> this guy walks his cat on Bernal. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to talk about dogs now. <laughs> Don't let this innocent face fool you. This is my dog. Um, he is so in love with chasing birds. So um, one of the metaphor, what's it? I guess it's an analogy that a um, shorebird docent gave to me. He, he's a docent out at Agate Beach. And he said, imagine you had access to your kitchen twice a day. That's when it's low tide and the birds can feed. Uh, and imagine in that kitchen, there was a lion. <laughs> so that's it. You know, it's like, they get they're they're aware of all of the activity in these natural areas. So um, I take my dog to places where you can take him off leash. Um, if I take him to Fort Funston, I walk him away from the the shoreline. Um, it's just it's made me much more conscious since I heard that um, analogy. And no discussion about how to save birds, um, because certainly climate change is affecting them. Is um, can I can't? We have to talk about climate change. Um, we have to talk about the climate crisis, actually. Um, so, what do I want you to do for that? I've lost all my notes. All right. Uh, first of all, I, the best thing you can do is be active around climate issues. Put your money behind and support anybody who's calling it a crisis and is putting it on their um, political ca- in their political campaigns. Um, it's really sad that the Democratic Party is not talking about this um, at the convention. So um, support the people that do. And in your own lives, you can join a clean power plan. You can build some solar, drive an electric car, take the bus. Uh, You know, we all know how to be green. I'm in the, you know, I'm speaking to the choir here. But... um, it's, it's now a crisis. Recently, you may have heard of the uh, decline in insect populations. It's, uh, there's estimates of between 50 and 75%. 75% is what's happening in um, France, of all places. And a lot of this is pesticide use. But um, about the time that I was writing the introduction to the book, I heard Douglas Talamay on Science Friday. He's an entomologist at the University of Delaware, and he um, was talking about his new book. It was called uh, Bringing Nature Home, Gardening for Wildlife in Your Own Backyards or something like that. Um, And he uh, told us that, you know, 95% of birds are insectivores. Um, this little ruby crown kinglet, if you look at its beak, I watched it gleaning those little aphid-like bugs um, over in Golden Gate Park. 
And here's a couple of opportunistic, opportunistic <laughs> that I just saw on my way back from Car- Carrizo Plain, harvesting the insects off of grills, of bumpers. Um, but when a bird is feeding young, it needs a lot of caterpillars. It needs that sort of soft baby food of calip- caterpillars to keep their young going. Um, this is a that was a bluebird in the East Bay. This is an oriole that was right outside my studio. Um, so we need to be gardening for uh, caterpillars and planting their host plants and um, in all their life forms. And also for bees, native bees are, you know, they're, they're major pollinators. They pollinate as many cr- crops as uh, European honeybees. So what he also remarked on was how people who say they love birds don't think about them when they go to the store, to the garden store. So uh, I've been on this little mission to photograph some uh, native gardens so that I can educate uh, gardeners and landscapers and anybody who's interested. Um, He recently published a study that said if our gardens were 70% native, we would start restoring some of the habitat that has been lost. A lot of habitat loss is actually not you know, forests being mowed down is how we've altered the terrains that we live in, um, our parks, our gardens. So this figure of 70% is doable. It's a little bit of a search finding locally native plants, but you can do it. There's some websites and there are nurseries. My friend Lori and I have been searching this stuff out now for, and then Alan, you has this beautiful, beautiful habitat around his yard, but some of it's just native, but, but, um, so this is my friend Barbara and Barry's yard and she's got quite the botanic garden there. Um, there are more and more, gardens on the native plant tours now. They're really fun to see. There's one in the East Bay, and there's one um, actually down in the peninsula. This was one in San Jose. I could try to identify all those plants, but I might put you to sleep. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is a friend's yard. Uh, It's over on near Twin Peaks, Glen Park. So we need to embrace insects and Plant the plants that insects can eat. And if you don't have a garden or a yard, um, you can get out there and work with volunteers to restore what's done, what we have locally. These are, um, Golden Gate Audubon has a regular volunteer experience if you want to look at their site. Um, these, she recruits a lot of people from Salesforce on Mondays. They come down and restore Pure 94. And to visit Pure 94 is a wonderful thing. It's right, you know, down on the, you know, it's on the, it's in San Francisco, down by the dump, or the Recology Center, actually. And I'm going to leave you with this beauty. These are uh, Vox's Swifts, and they are coming in to roost in a tower, excuse me, an old chimney 
in San Rafael. And they have spent all day long flying around harvesting insects. I did that in 20 minutes. (laughs) All right. That's it. Yeah, you're welcome. Do you have a, a personal favorite of uh, a nest that you photograph? Yes, I do. Okay, cool. It's the Bachman's warbler. The yeah. nest I talk. Yeah, it's yeah, it's uh, that one. Just I don't know. Maybe because I played with, with sticks and twigs when I was a child, but <laughs> and it's also the po- story behind it is so poignant. But I love the shape of it, and I love all those skeleton leaves. I wanted to know the the swifts. Are they active right now? No, that was in the fall. The fall. Yeah, and um, you can check the Marin Audubon when they're taking a tour there. Um, we're encouraged not to talk about it too much and invite the world until they have preserved those towers, uh, the chimneys historically. Just preserve them. Um, in a way that that can be attended by more people. They belong to McNear's Brickyard. Um, and it wasn't that long ago that people didn't know that they were there. And one of the, you know, one of the now current observers who kept driving by on his way home from work and he noticed, you know, that bird people know birds, right? And he kept seeing them and then went to look and has been monitoring them. I've contributed some video to their research. They're trying to figure out how to estimate how many birds are there by uh, the many, how many per minute go in. Sharon, I just want to hear a little bit more about your history as a photographer. Oh, my checkered past. The checkered past <laughs> and, and, how, and how you developed your eye. I mean, you've just got an extraordinary I, eye. You know, I, I don't know, Alan. I mean, I spend a lot of time to make one photograph. I guess because I've edited, you know, and I've seen so many photographs and particular nature photographs that I kind of feel like I can't do that or I can't do that, you know, and that I'm also having a a sort of reverie when I'm out there and to name it and say, this is really it. I don't know. It's kind of like I'm, I'm overcome with the need to make that photograph, but I'm not very prolific. You know, I'm not making a, you know, when I go on a field trip or something like that, maybe I'll get lucky if I get one, but I think over a year to make those more intricate, interesting landscapes, I might do six, you know, it's not, it's not, but I'm also working, you know, I'm working and then I'm, you know, doing other things like, uh, land restoration and, you know, walking my dog. <laughs> it's great. So, I was wondering. Um, I'm not much of a birder, but I walk a lot, and uh, I see mostly big birds, the uh-huh. like crows, and and yeah, I hardly crows. ever see any little birds. Uh, just in oh, the city, well, you need a pair of binoculars. And so I was just wondering. Uh, it just seems like there's so many of them. Is that is that a problem? Do you know? Well. With the populations of birds being down by 50%, it is a problem. Um, You know, there's... But there are ways to see birds if you're interested. 
you can look at the Audubon sites, Golden Gate. Where do you live? Laurel Heights. Yeah, there are walks all over the city. People will start guiding you to learn how to look at birds. And people are very generous with their information because they care about them. They're, they're fun to go on. Um, but you need a pair of binoculars, but right? There's little sparrows. Well, there's all kinds of them on Bernal Hill. What am I seeing? I'm see- um, well, there's always a Phoebe. Uh, sometimes we've seen, Lori can help me here because she walks with me. <laughs> there's, right now, there's, um, some red-tailed hawks and they have chicks. We heard the chicks this morning trying, like, feed me, feed me, you know. Um, chickadees, lots of chickadees and, um, what else? It, hummingbirds, towhees, uh, um, there are mockingbirds everywhere. They're not just, um, the problem with crows is that there are too many of them and the crows have become ubiquitous because of our garbage. They're like seagulls. They, um, and the problem with them is the crows and jays are nest predators. I heard, um, a little towhee nest next to me in my neighbor's yard. I heard the chicks, you know, and, um, then I heard jays. And I didn't hear the chicks any longer. So uh, we really have to be better with our garbage. There's actually a program at Big Basin Park. Um, it's called No Crumb Left Behind. And they ask people when they go in to um, make sure that there's nothing, no food left. And then they have these special uh, containers for the garbage that are uh, bird-proof. Well, I want to thank you, Sharon. Yes. You're doing a wonderful performance. <laughs> Thank really. You. Well, you have a wealth of information. I, had I don't too think much you... and I couldn't read my notes. Because, yeah. Well, anyway, thank you for all for listening to me and um, anyway. and and I hope you care about the birds as much as I do. So And um, all the other creatures on the planet, you know, all of the things <laughs> I talked to you t- about tonight are going to help other creatures and us. So I'm uh, formally bringing this to a close with the gavel. Okay, now. Thank you for coming.